Alma provides a timely warning against the creeping lure of apostasy as first Korahor and then the Zoramites reject the church, reject the spirit of prophecy, and ultimately reject Christ. I'm Mark Holt, and this is Gospel Doctrine. Welcome to Gospel Doctrine, your Come Follow Me podcast, and I'm really looking forward to today's lesson. It's Alma chapter 30 and 31, The Virtue of the Word of God. And I promised a few things in the last couple of episodes. One was that I would explain uh, some of my delays in the last month uh, that's that's prevented me from getting my episodes out on time. We're mostly caught up, and I hope, I hope to get one more episode ahead soon. Uh, but I'm pleased to report that my wife and I are expecting a child and so that will be good news that I hope you will all rejoice with me in. And some bad news is that we recently had a, a pipe burst in our home and had a flood in our basement, among other some other things that happened. And so um, I'm very committed to getting my podcast out. And, uh, and, and if you remember, if you were a subscriber of ours last year, you'll remember that um, on my wedding day, well, you may, you may not have known this, but I didn't miss a podcast when I got married. The day before my wedding day, I recorded three episodes so that I didn't have to worry about it on my honeymoon. So I'm very committed, and uh, sometimes even even that commitment can be challenged by the vicissitudes of life. But I'm glad to be to be back with you. I also promised a page on the gospeltoctrine.com website about the name of God, and that is available there if you go to gospeltoctrine.com and click on posts in the main navigation. Uh, Right now, there's only one post, and you can see there it's called The Name of God, and that's an essay that I wrote when we were studying the Exodus. And I think it's interesting in the light of the last few lessons that we've been learning. Uh, The word Jehovah appears in the original text of the Old Testament, but it doesn't appear, obviously we don't know if it appears, in the text of the Book of Mormon. And therefore, uh, it may be profitable to imagine that it does, since the language was the same. So when you so when you read the word the Lord, when you read the Lord in the Book of Mormon, it may be that the underlying carving on the original plates was in fact the name of God, the Tetragrammaton or Yahweh or Jehovah, as as we mentioned in that in that post. So please go and read that. I also promised a donate link, which has been active for a little bit now, uh, and at the top of the main navigation, the top right link is a donate link. It explains some of our priorities around donation. I hope to set up soon an account with a subscription service where if you'd like to donate regularly, you can. It also explains there what we would use the donations for. This is now and is always intended to be a nonprofit podcast. So the the short answer is that the donations would be used to help us with the costs of doing what we do. And that would be much appreciated. And it's, of course, not required in any way. If you have a question for me, uh, if you'd like to have a question about the scriptures that we have studied, will study, or even any topic that requires a scriptural response, send me an email at gt at gospeltoctrine.com. Once again, I'd like to thank Paul Castro for his many hours that he spends doing transcription work, and we make those transcriptions available when we get them. They come out after the podcast, obviously, but we make those uh, transcriptions available on our website, each episode has a 
corresponding page on the website at gospeldoctrine.com. So I hope you'll check those out. Uh, they generally come out sometime after the audio, the audio I released first. And so all of those of you who are subscribed using a podcast app, you hear the podcast first, and then at some point later, we get the transcription and the notes. My notes I also scan and put on my website and make those available to you. And that brings us to today's the content of today's lesson, which is Alma chapter 30 and 31. These are both famous chapters. The first one, Alma chapter 30, is perhaps more famous, one of the most famous chapters in the Book of Mormon. It's when Alma deals with the man Korahor, who's called the Antichrist. Now, it, the prophets of God have dealt with, in the past, Alma dealt with one of them, but the prophets have dealt with two other Antichrists in the Book of Mormon. The first was the prophet Jacob, and he dealt with a man named Sherem. And Alma, earlier in the Book of Alma, dealt with a man named Nehor, who gained a lot of followers, and even after his death, his ideology continued to spread. And the culmination of these teachers is Korahor. You may remember that Sherem, the one that Jacob dealt with, this was when the Nephites were still a relatively uh, small people in number. And Sherem's teachings were that you don't know about things that are to come, you should just look for salvation in the law of Moses. And this teaching was later echoed by the wicked priests of the evil king Noah. So interestingly enough, here was an Antichrist who accepted the authority of the scriptures and yet rejected Christ. Nehor's ideology was that God saves everyone, and so no particular doctrine is required, no actions are required. Korahor is sort of the culmination of this. Korahor teaches that there's no God, period, and that nothing that anyone does is a crime. We'll talk a little bit more about his teachings. In fact, we'll jump right into them. The chapter, chapter 30, starts with the story of Korahor and how he found some success and where he went. We'll kind of cover that at the end. But I think the point, the first point we should make is to talk about what his teachings actually were. So it isn't until Alma is brought up in front of one of the chief priests that we are exposed to his teachings. And... Before we begin, I want to I give you a, a vocabulary word. You may have already heard this word, but if you haven't, it's one that every member of the church, I think, should know. And that word is epistemology. This is a word that is widely used in philosophical discussions. It means the study of how we know what we know. What are the limits? What is the nature? What is the origin of human knowledge? And what does it mean to know something? The, the, that question, that study is epistemology, and it is a branch of philosophy. And without epistemology, without understanding what knowledge even means, what it is, none of human endeavor really has any purpose, any point. And it certainly has no meaning, since meaning uh, is derived directly from truth. And the reason why I bring this word up is someone's epistemology can point you directly, you can draw a straight line between their epistemology and what they're going to teach, what their teachings are, and what their values are. And Korahor is no different. So Korahor takes an epistemological approach at attacking the Nephites' faith. And one of the things that he says, he makes a lot of claims. And so we're going to, you'll, you'll kind of recognize the theme of, of, of epistemology running through the, the claims of Korahor and all of his teachings. And he basically attacks the Nephites' belief of knowing, claiming to know that there will be a Christ, that God exists, that there is a right and wrong. Uh, all of these things are attacked, and Korahor claims to have knowledge about all of them. So in verse 13 we begin, 
One of Korohor's epistemological claims is that no man can know of anything which is to come. This is an interesting claim, as we'll see. It becomes more interesting as we learn more about what he teaches. But remember this, that is his first claim. No man can know of anything which is to come. Uh, Sort of a corollary to that is that there is no Christ, because Christ is in the future, and you can't know about what's in the future, and therefore, why are you teaching us about this being called Christ that is going to come when you can't possibly know if he will? In verse 15, we learn the next teaching of Korahor, you cannot know of things that you don't see. So here's an even more bold claim. Not only can you not know about things that are in the future, you can't know even know about things that are in the present if you don't personally witness them. And now he makes, so that's an epistemological claim. It it talks about how we know what we know. And he makes some very bold claims about things that we can't know, things that are outside of the limits of our knowledge. Not only the limits of our present knowledge, but the limits of our possible knowledge. We, not only do we not know if there's a Christ, but we cannot know. So this is, this is the nature, this is sort of the summary of Korohor's first claims. And now in verse 17, he makes actually some religious claims. So he says, and religion uh, in its broad sense, I don't mean he's, he's starting a church, but you can, you can understand that someone is making a religious claim when they start to teach you about the nature of reality. So you don't have to use the word God to be a religious teacher. You can say, there, you know, all of nature or all of the universe is bending to support you. This may or may not be true, but it's certainly a religious claim. And you hear that sort of claim from people who, who say that they're not religious. I believe in a force. I believe in, you know, I believe the universe is, is the compendium of people's consciousness. Whatever they might believe, if they believe that nature has some sort of consciousness, then this is a religious belief, and it, and it is a faith-based belief. And I'm going to take that one step further and say the stated belief that there is no consciousness is also a religious belief because it, because it is a statement about the nature of reality, about the nature of the universe. And you could say just nature because uh, nature in its broad sense includes all of those things. Nature doesn't just mean the trees that, that are out in the, a beautiful valley untouched by man. Nature means things as they are on and off this planet. Nature includes all the stars, the whole universe. And as we observe it, we, tempt, we attempt to not define what nature is, but to discover what it is. And so someone making a claim about something that is not yet discovered is making a religious claim. And Korahor, if, uh, if, he, if he were to be subjected to a strict logical analysis, would be forced to admit this. First, he's making an epistemological claim. How can we know what you're, what you're saying is true. And then he makes religious claims of his own. He, he shifts almost immediately from making those claims about epistemology right into making claims about religion and the nature of reality. And he claims to have knowledge or some sort of uh, glance or understanding of the mysteries that are hidden from everyone else. So his first religious teachings are to be found in verse 17. He says, look, people in life, they prosper according to the gifts that they're given. Every man fares, in other words, and I love how this is put. I actually like to use this turn of phrase in everyday life because I think it's great. Uh, Every man fares according to the management of the creature. And there are certainly situations in life where this is true. Uh, You know, so I, I like to say the management of the creature. And it just, it just basically means 
the choices that you make. Everyone prospers according to his genius, he says, and everyone conquers according to his strength. And the implication is that these things are good. Now, the interesting part is that Korahor doesn't point out that he had to have some sort of programming in his mind to decide what was good. If you prosper rather than fail, and if you conquer rather than become conquered, then one of those is better than the other. And so by implication, he's saying, I prefer conquering, I prefer prospering. But it doesn't say why. Where did those preferences, where did they come from? And if they didn't come from somewhere, then why does he have them? What is the point of prospering? Why would you want to prosper? All of these are questions for somebody, and I think they're very, very reasonable questions, they're obvious questions, to pose to somebody who says, well, there is no God. Because if there is no God, why is it better to prosper? Why is it better to conquer? And what does it mean that management according, uh, the management of the creature, if the creature, and a creature in its ancient sense just meant somebody who was created. So what does the management of the creature mean if there was no creator? Korahor, of course, doesn't answer any of these questions. He doesn't even admit that they exist. Instead, he offers these bits of philosophy in order to arrive at his final implication, which is that whatsoever a man doeth is no crime. So there is nothing you can do that is a crime, and therefore nothing that Korahor himself has done is wrong. Okay, so that takes us up through the low 20s in, uh, in Alma chapter 30, the low verse 20. And now we're going to jump back to a little bit about his introduction. So Korahor had some success with this doctrine. He'd been teaching this around Zarahemla, and in Zarahemla people were willing to accept it. And what he was saying was, you should take what you have, in other words, your wealth, the things that you've earned by your hard work, and rather than store them up, share them with the poor, and rather than exercise self-restraint with the urges that come upon you, you should take what you earn, you should possibly even take what other people have earned, although he doesn't say that. He certainly doesn't seem to condemn it. And you should enjoy the heck out of yourself. And if that means breaking every commandment that you've been taught is right, then so be it, because nothing that you can do is a crime. And a lot of people, this message appeals to many of the Nephites, so a lot of people listen to him. Eventually, though, he makes a mistake, which is to travel over. He's a very diligent anti-theist missionary, and he travels over to the land of Jershon. Now, if you remember, the anti-Nephi-Lehi's, as they were known in Lamanite lands, they come into Nephite lands and become known as the people of Ammon and are given the land of Jershon to settle in. Now, the land of Jershon is separated only by one other place, and we'll learn about that place in our next chapter. And it's separated only by one other small area from the land of the Lamanites. And so Korahor is getting around, and he travels to Jershon, but these people are so committed to the worship of Christ that obviously they were willing to lie down on a battlefield when an enemy army is rushing in. Why would they submit themselves to this, to put it mildly, inconsistent doctrine? Uh, And they don't. (laughs) It's interesting that the, uh, the people of Ammon, they will not defend themselves against a physical attack. And here comes a spiritual attack, and they bind him and take him to the high priest. And Ammon, who's their high priest, immediately exiles him. So they deposit him at the borders and say, no thank you, Korahor. Uh, the, the point is made in the early verses of Alma chapter 30, in verse 7 and again in verse 11. There is no law to dictate what he might believe. believe I'm sorry, his, his belief or what he might believe. And the 
the phrase used in both of those verses is that this sort of law would have put people on unequal grounds. Now, I want to talk about that a little bit. You remember when Alma had Nehor in front of him, and he said, you have attempted, this was the charge against Nehor. Nehor had murdered Gideon because he had resisted him in his words. And what Alma said to Nehor was, you have attempted to enforce priestcraft by the sword. And if priestcraft were to be enforced by the sword, then that would prove the utter destruction of this people. And to me, these verses sort of echo that, because what would such a law be? If there were such a law that would put people, uh, that would dictate people's beliefs, why would it put them onto unequal grounds? And the answer is, that law would be, in fact, enforcing priestcraft by the sword. Because what is a law except a sword? Allah says, if you break this, there will be consequences. And if you refuse to face the consequences, ultimately, uh, let's say that you refuse, in the Nephite lands, there's a law that you have to uh, travel to your mother-in-law's house and give her a loaf of bread every week. Well, that would be a silly law, but if you disobeyed it and you said, no, I'm not going to obey that law, and they said, well, now you have to, uh, now you have to bring her two loaves of bread or whatever, but you kept disobeying, kept disobeying, Ultimately, at the end of that law, there would be somebody who would come to your house with a sword and arrest you. And this is the case for any government that has ever existed. You try to enforce a law, and ultimately what the government means is we can force you to obey the law if you, if you choose to defy it. And this law, this hypothetical law that didn't exist among the Nephites, but that could have uh, about a man's belief, this law would have been a law about priestcraft. And the fact that it was enforced by the government would have meant that it was priestcraft enforced with, with the sword. And so what Alma is saying is, we haven't fallen into the trap of Nehor. And I don't mean that Alma said this directly to Korahor, but this is, right now, we are reading from the record of Alma. This is Mormon very closely summarizing, if not directly transcribing, the words of Alma from his record. So this is Alma telling us that we have chosen, among the Nephites, we've chosen not to enforce priestcraft with the sword. And this means we accept the scripture from the book of Joshua, which was, choose ye this day whom ye will serve. You can choose to serve Jehovah, or you can serve the other gods that surround you, or you can choose to believe in nothing at all. But you cannot choose to commit crimes. So this was the description of their society. Now, Korahor was protected by this law. At the same time, he's saying nothing is a crime. It's very interesting how Korahor seems to manage to keep the discussion centered around those areas where he's on the attack, but there's never really any discussion that occurs around all the inconsistencies in his logic, because he benefits from having a society built on laws. It protects him. His beliefs and his teachings and his right to teach are thus protected. And yet, and his property, when he gains notoriety and when he gains fame and supporters, his property is protected. And yet he is willing to preach that whatsoever a man doeth is no crime. He benefits at the same time he attacks the very ground upon which he stands. And this continues. So uh, the, the first discussion, the one that we've already summarized, it happens when he makes his way into the land of Gideon. You remember in Alma chapters 5 and 7, Alma taught first to the people in Zarahemla, and they were wicked in need of repentance. And then he taught the people of Gideon, and he says, wow, I'm, I'm so relieved to find you in a better spiritual state than the people of Zarahemla. And those were the people of Gideon. 
Alma fares among them no better than he did among the people of Ammon. They bind him and carry him in front of the chief judge and in front of the chief priest, and they were both, or the high priest, and they were two different people. And they eventually, once he blasphemes enough, they, they give up on him, and they send him to Alma over across the valley to the land of Zarahemla. Now, Alma the, and the chief judge, I'm sorry, the chief judge and the chief priest, Alma is now the high priest of the church, and there's a chief judge in addition to him, and Korahor appears in front of them. So he repeats all of these teachings that he says. So if we now if we jump forward again to verse 25, we, uh, I want to tell you some of the lies of Korahor. So first we talked about his epistemological claims, which were inconsistent. We'll point out some of those inconsistencies. Then we talked about his religious claims, and now we're going to talk about his lies. So he says to Alma and the chief judge, he says, Ye say that this people is a guilty and a fallen people because, because of the fall of Adam, but I say that people are not accountable for the sins of their parents. Now, he uses a truth to tell this lie. The lie is that the, the teachings of the gospel are never that people are guilty and fallen, just that they're fallen. So he sneaks that extra word in there and says, you're all guilt. they're teaching that you're all guilty. Don't you hate that the church teaches that you're guilty? What the church taught was that they were a, a lost and fallen people. This, were, this phrase is used many times in the Book of Mormon. But it doesn't mean that people are guilty. And Korahor insinuates that it does mean exactly that. And this is a lie, and he knows it's a lie. Secondly, and most infamously, he teaches that the, the high priests do this in order that they may glut themselves with the labors of the hands of the people. So somehow they're being enriched by the fact that everyone else is denying themselves the pleasure of using their wealth. And Alma immediately shuts this down. Alma thoroughly refutes this claim. He says, look, I have never received even one senine, which is the lowest unit of their money. I've never even received one senine, even a pittance, for my work as a high priest. Now, as a chief judge, and I and the other chief judges, we've received according to law for our time, as any person does when they go to work. But in all my ecclesiastical duties, including when I was traveling all around the country, I never received any money at all. And what's more, Korahor, you know this. And so how can you say that our motives are to enrich ourselves when we don't receive any money? Now, Korahor makes no response to this, because there is no response. Alma's absolutely right. It was a 100% lie that Korahor made this up and was claiming this and teaching this. But it was a popular teaching. It was a popular lie. So in verse 27, uh, before Alma does this, Korahor makes another religious claim. He says God, and this is also, this is both a religious and an epistemological claim. In verse 28, God has never been seen or known, and he never was nor ever will be. So, number one, you can't. You, God has never been known. God is not seen, he's known. So how does Korahor know that God has never been seen or known? He places a lot of limits on the knowledge about God, and he places no limits on his knowledge about the non-existence of God. Isn't that interesting? So the epistemology of people who disagree with Korahor is extremely limited, and yet his own is unlimited. And then... He, now, I want to point out, if we go back to verse 13, one of Korahor's early claims was, no man can know of anything which is to come. Now we're in verse 28. God has never been seen or known, and God never was, 
nor ever will be. So that's interesting. Now he's making a claim to know of something which is to come. The fact that nobody has challenged Korahor on this until, uh, until this point is something we're going to get to. And the question, the obvious question that came to my mind is, why did this teaching appeal to people? It's obviously refutable. It's not that Korohor has come in front of them with uh, a collection of evidence about the non-existence of God and said, look guys, I don't have a dog in this fight, but I want you all to know that God doesn't exist and here's why I think that. Instead, what Korohor is, and that would be, I, I think actually somebody like that I could respect. I can respect a lot of people who don't believe in God and I do respect them. And Korohor is not among them because Korohor is obviously not acting in sincerity at this point. So now I want to define a couple more terms. Uh, the first one is an agnostic. An agnostic is someone who doesn't know what they believe about God. They, they, they believe that nature is sort of inscrutable and they can't peek behind the curtain. And so there may be a God and there may, be, there may not be, but I don't know right now. And I may know one day in the future and I may not ever be able to figure it out, but I'm agnostic about the question. It comes from the Greek A, the, uh, the prefix A means without. And Gnosticism, with a G at the beginning, a silent G, is, is knowledge itself. So agnostic simply means, I don't know. Atheist, now theist is someone who believes in God. This is also from Greek. And A at, at the beginning, again, means someone without. A theist is somebody who doesn't believe in God. He believes that God does not exist. An anti-theist teaches definitively that God does not exist. So an, uh, an agnostic says, I don't know. An atheist says, I don't believe, and an, an anti-theist says, I know not. I know that God does not exist. I have knowledge of this. Now, if you're thinking about these, uh, these things, especially in a critical way, especially uh, an anti-theist, to know that God does not exist, it presents a very specific philosophical challenge, and it's sort of obvious. How do you know that? <laughs> How can you know something does not exist? You may have heard the, the phrase at some point in your life, it's very hard to prove a negative. So if the cops were to come to you and say, uh, we think that you robbed a convenience store, prove that you didn't. Uh, you, in order to do that, you would have to make an exhaustive inventory of everywhere you had been in the time in question. And if you were unable to make that inventory, then you wouldn't be able to prove that negative. And luckily, our justice system is not based on proving a negative. But that's what uh, anti-theism is based on. He's saying, I can prove the negative. The only way you could prove that God does not exist is to have an inventory of everything that exists and say God is not among them. And to say that God will never exist would uh, additionally put the burden on you to know everything, to have an exhaustive inventory of everything that will exist, and then to show that God is not among any of those things. Korahor, of course, cannot do any of this. Instead, he just claims it without any sort of backing whatsoever. He's been very successful with these tactics until he runs into Alma. So what Alma says to him is exactly right. In verse 40, Alma says, he strikes right at the heart of the matter, and he says, uh, what proof have you that God does not exist? So it's not incumbent. Alma makes the very reasonable point that it's not incumbent on a believer to prove the existence of God. But an anti-theist claims that he knows that God does not exist, makes it incumbent upon that anti-theist to prove God's non-existence. So Alma correctly says to Korahor, what proof have you that these things are not true? Uh, 
And as Alma is talking to Korahor, Korahor, it appears to me, in fact, that it is revealed to Alma, the way it was revealed, the, the mind of Zezrom when he was teaching in Ammonihah, the mind of Korahor is revealed to Alma. And in verse 42, he says, I know that you believe that these things are true, but you are possessed of a lying spirit. And as Alma begins to describe the penalties, so uh, Korahor asks for a sign. He says, if you really want me to believe in God, and Korahor has kind of flipped around the uh, discourse now. Korahor makes his arguments a moving target so that he can never be pinned down. This is another mark of somebody with a lying spirit. So first of all, he comes out saying, I know there is no God. No man can know of anything which is to come. And now he's saying, look, if you want me to believe, why don't you show me a sign? When it was his job to convince Alma that there was no God, Alma wasn't coming to Korahor and saying, Korahor, look, I really need you to stop believing what you believe and start believing what I believe. But all of a sudden, that's how Korahor is trying to frame the discourse. If you've ever tried to talk to somebody about a philosophical, philosophical topic and felt like it was making you crazy, uh, well, you may be genuinely crazy, but it also might be that the tactics that the person was using were similar to this. If somebody keeps shifting the point of the discourse around, and as soon as you make the point they were defending, all of a sudden they're defending a slightly different point, uh, that's what Korahor is doing. He's utilizing lies, misdirection, and confusing epistemological claims with religious claims in order to keep the very reasonable arguments against him from ever coming to their conclusion. Eventually, this conversation with Alma also comes to a conclusion, and that is that Alma says, very well, if what you really want is a sign, and I don't think you should want that because it can only hurt you, but if what you want is a sign, then God will show forth a sign in you. Is it what you want? He gives him a couple of chances to abandon that course, but Korahor won't abandon it. He's too stubborn. At this point, it's sort of obvious that Korahor knows what he's in for because he says, look, uh, I don't deny the existence of God. I just say that you don't know. And so this, if you if you go back, he, he actually, here in verse 48, is contradicting two of his very definitive statements and very specific statements that he's made before. Number one, that in, in verse 28, he says, God has never been seen or known and never was or never will be. Not never was seen, but never was, never existed. God never existed and he never will exist. This was a specific claim that he made. And now he's saying, I don't deny the existence of God. Also, he says, you can't know of things that, that are to come or that you cannot see. And now he's saying, I just don't think you know, Alma. Unless you show me a sign, I will not believe. So now he's saying, I don't know whether you can know, but I will believe if you show me a sign. So he's admitting that the possibility exists. And to admit that is to say that he never really knew all along. Korahor has abandoned every position he's made. He's obviously quite unsure of himself here. And he's ho- he's kind of hoping, I think, that this whole thing will blow over. But his pride won't let him back down and say, look, uh, never mind. I don't need a sign. Let's just forget the whole thing. He could have, at this point, he could have still walked out of there a free man. An uncursed man, you might say. But uh, And he's committed no crime. Alma is not punishing him with the law. In fact, Alma has no legal authority. But Alma does say, uh, with his ecclesiastical authority and with the sealing power which God has given the, given him, he says, according to my word, you will not have utterance from this time forth, and then it is instantly done. Now at this point, Korahor can no longer deny that it is the power of God that has come upon him. 
And and he and what's interesting now, I, I want to point this out. Korahor earlier said that you cannot know of things which you do not see. And yet here he is. He didn't see anything. All of a sudden he can't see. It appears also that he can't hear because when the chief judge wants to ask him a question, he writes to Korahor rather than just ask him. If, if Korahor's only disability was that he couldn't talk, then, uh, then that would have been bad enough. But it appears also that he's deaf, so he's deaf and dumb. And from this point, his communication is in writing. And he said, look, the devil appeared to me in the form of an angel. So now we have Alma's word totally vindicated. Alma says, you know these things are true, but you are possessed of a lying spirit. And now we have evidence of that very prediction that Alma made. So we have evidence that Alma was given knowledge of things that he could not see and that were to come. So isn't that interesting? Korahor said that such evidence could not exist. And yet Alma gives him definitive proof that not only was Korahor wrong about God, but he was wrong about all the arguments he made to get to his positions. One of those arguments being, you cannot know of things which you do not see. You cannot know of things which are to come. Alma demonstrated that he knew of both of those things. He knew that Korahor would not have utterance, and he knew that his word would cause it to happen, both of which were in the future and were things that he couldn't see. Now, I want to point out in verses 52 and 53, Korahor had the devil appear to him, or the way, what he describes at least, is the devil appeared to me in the form of an angel, and he explained to me these things that I should teach. And I think anybody reading this thinks, okay, but if the devil appeared to you in the form of an angel and said there is no God, didn't you wonder where that angel came from? Who sent the angel? If God doesn't exist, why do you care if someone appears to you in the form of an angel? If there is no God, why does it matter what an angel said? And in the absence of God, is not an angel, doesn't an angel take that position? Doesn't an angel become God because an angel is somehow above man? Shouldn't the angel be worshipped as God at that point? And all of these things, any one of these questions, had Korahor had the courage to ask them in that moment, they would have caused his entire argument to crumble. But as he says, this philosophy that the devil was teaching me, it appealed to the carnal mind. And here we get to the point. Uh, Korahor didn't believe what he was teaching because he actually believed it. He believed it because he wanted to believe it, because it served him to believe it. So there's a very big difference between sincere beliefs, sincerely held beliefs, and this kind of cynicism and hypocrisy that we here see demonstrated on the part of Korahor. He was truly an evil man because he was teaching things that he didn't believe in order to get things that he knew were wrong so that he could come out ahead at the end of the day. And this makes everyone worse. Everyone who knew Korahor was a worse person. He was serving only himself and the devil, and neither of those very well. Finally, I want to point out something about this angel, uh, this devil appearing to Korahor in the form of an angel. Uh, He used the same tactics that Korahor used. He used things that were obviously refutable by any sort of logical examination. Hey, look, Korahor, I am an angel here appearing to you, and there is no God. Well, okay, angel, uh, if there's no God, how are you an angel? That This was a very refutable, easily refutable argument, and yet he makes it to someone who he knows is susceptible to that sort of thing because of his personal desires for gain and for sin. So the devil does this to Korahor, and then Korahor repeats it 
in front of the people. Even though we read about them in the alternate order, that is the chronological order in which it happened. So Korahord learned not only his doctrine from the devil, but he also learned his tactics from the devil. And those tactics are to attack someone's epistemology, to attack their religious beliefs with religious claims of your own, which even though you are attacking faith, are faith-based claims. To say that there is no God is actually to state something in which you have faith, not to state a fact. And people who, so here's the problem, here's the question that we're going to get to the whole chapter. Who, to whom do the teachings of Korahor appeal? Obviously, he's teaching people who believe in God, so why are they willing to accept what Korahor is teaching? And so the question is, why would they choose to do what Korahor did, which is ignore what not only the spirit, but a more rational examination of what's being taught would show them, which is that Korahor is wrong? Why would they ignore that? Why do they want to receive this? So this is the, the success of Korahor can be attributed to a, a few different, very human tendencies, and we can separate them by his tactics. So first ta tactic is to embarrass people into not thinking logically. And you can read this over and over again. You are bound down by the foolish traditions of your fathers. So uh, not only are people embarrassed when they do believe in Christ or God, but they're also embarrassed after they start believing in Korahor's teachings. You used to believe in that. Look at this stupid thing that you used to believe. It's a tradition. It's only because it came down from somebody that that taught you when you were a child. And if you hadn't been taught it as a child, you'd never accept that kind of teaching because it's so foolish, it's so stupid. And people thus are embarrassed. Those who are easily embarrassed about what they believe, therefore, were vulnerable to Korahor's teaching, even though it was, it was something that was refutable. It was logic around which people could find their way, had they been trying. Second tactic, Korahor lied about his knowledge of God and nature. And these lies were easily spotted because of the many inconsistencies that we've pointed out. No one can know of things that are to come, but let me tell you about th something that will happen. No one will ever prove the existence of God. No one can know of things they cannot see, but let me tell you about something that I can't see. God doesn't exist. Whatsoever a man doeth is no crime. Well, actually, what, you're been do what you've been doing is wrong because you're just following a foolish tradition of your fathers. So this appeals to the kind of person who wants to stop believing in something because it's a tradition. Now, this is different from a sincere uh, qualm, let's say, with a tradition that comes down to you. So, for example, if you, if you came from a tradition where you had to believe you couldn't eat meat, and then you, you start having uh, qualms about this. You say, you know what? I actually don't think there's anything wrong with this teaching that I was brought up with, that I can't eat meat. I'm questioning it because as I do research, it seems like people can't get their protein as well or as easily if they don't. And this is my belief that I should eat meat. Well, and I'm not, I'm not trying to say anything true or false about the nature of eating meat. I'm just saying that might be a tradition that someone had. If you had this sincerely held qualm with a tradition that is totally different from saying, well, I actually don't know whether it's good or bad to eat meat, but I want to disagree with it because I was brought up with it, because my parents taught it to me, because I have feelings about their tradition in which I was raised or in which I was converted. Uh, I, I don't like that it is a tradition, and therefore I want to oppose it only because of that 
not on its merits, but because, and I think here's the point, because I want to be smarter than the people who do believe it. And I don't feel like I'm that smart right now. And so I have to oppose what they believe and call it a foolish tradition so that I can be smarter than them, so I can feel like I have things figured out because I feel like I'm on shaky ground. This is also a very human tendency and it's it appeals on an emotional level. And so it gets through your logic before you even engage it. And therefore the decision is made about what you're going to believe and what you're going to challenge before you even question it. Third tactic, he lied about the motives of his opponents. So he said, your whole motivation is to get rich by being high priests. What you want people to do is to learn self-denial, but self-denial is not actually a good thing. It's only good for you because if people deny themselves and their urges, etc., then you get rich. Now, this appealed to people. They all knew, on some level, they knew it was not true. All they had to do was, uh, I'm sure all of them had very close acquaintances with those who functioned in church uh, positions of church leadership. And so, therefore, they, they all knew that none of their money, none of their donations, none of their contributions actually made their way into the pockets of any of those people. They knew what the money was used for, and yet they were willing to question it. Why? because they wanted a victim status. This, this creates victims. What this does is it pretends that there has been a crime committed, the crime of theft, the crime of fraud. And when there is such a crime, then there are victims, there are financial victims to this crime. But it creates victims, the teaching, Korohor's teaching along these lines, creates victims where there was no crime. And so those who wanted this victim status to avoid responsibility for the circumstances of their own life, let's say that they, they're not as rich as they want to be, they want someone else to blame for their problems. Uh, they're not as successful. They're not as whatever. They're not as popular. Therefore, if they can find someone else to blame, someone else at whose feet to lay the responsibility for their failures and their choices, the accountability for those choices, then they're on board instantly. And so, therefore, they're not going to engage in the intellectual exercise required to disprove Korohor's claims, which we've shown wasn't that hard. It took Alma maybe half an hour, I imagine, this conversation took, or less, to refute all of Korohor's claims. Even without the authority of the priesthood to give uh, Korohor this sign of deaf and dumbness, Alma was able to refute him logically before that happened, and Korohor started to abandon those very positions as soon as he met up with somebody who was willing to look at it rationally. And so it, it follows that none of the people who had uh, been willing to become one of Korohor's acolytes, none of those people had actually gone through this much work, as, as small as it seems. None, none of them had actually done it. And the reason that they didn't do it was because they chose not to do it. It was there for anyone to pick up. This, these logical threads were there for anyone to pick up and pull on, but no one chose to do it. So Korohor had success because of these reasons and possibly others. The reason I point out these tactics is because I see them very, very active today. So let's go through them one more time, and you can, uh, you can maybe understand in your own life where you see them. Number one, embarrass people into not thinking logically, both in opposition and in acquiescence, make fun of their beliefs. In other words, you are believing in this foolish belief about God, and if I can embarrass you about it, then we won't have to have the discussion as to why you shouldn't believe it, why it's foolish. Uh, number two, tactic, lying about the knowledge of God and nature. Nobody can know if God exists, therefore, 
God does not exist. I happen to know. I'm going to make a faith-based claim that your faith-based claim is invalid because it's a faith-based claim. And that is simply invalid reasoning on its face. Third tactic, lie about the motivations of those whom you disagree with. And, and all of these tactics had great success. And I think I should point out again, Korahor learned these tactics from the devil himself. So this is, I don't think there could be a more timely warning to us. Uh, this whole chapter is a chapter about personal apostasy. And there could not be a more timely warning about the dangers of personal apostasy. How it is that if you're going to fall away, how it is that would happen. And this chapter is actually an instruction manual on how to recognize this sort of attack. So I've given you some negatives. Now I'm going to give you the positives. First of all, there's no reason to be embarrassed for a believing in God. Many, 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 not only smart, but absolutely genius people have believed in God. Many stupid people have not believed in God. So the truth, there are, there are smart and silly people on both sides of that belief. There's nothing to be embarrassed about. Secondly, those who claim that they know that there is no God, or they claim to have, or they seem to claim. They, most people now recognize that this is an inconsistency, and so it won't quite be this obvious. But you can spot faith-based claims attacking faith-based claims if you're looking for it. I believe that your mode of living or believing is wrong, and therefore it is wrong. That's a faith-based claim. And someone else's faith-based claim has no power over your faith. Your faith is what you choose for it to be, based on the spirit that you felt, based on the learning that you have, and based on the choices that you've made. And it's very important. It is personal to you, and it is sacred. So there's nothing wrong with sticking to your faith when it is directly in opposition to someone else's faith. You have that God-given right. As Alma puts it, uh, there was no law that, people, that could put people on unequal grounds in this way. Third tactic, don't let someone push you into victim status or offer you a victim status as a way to avoid responsibility for the outcome of your own choices. Now, this is, a, this is sort of a tricky area because there are definitely, definitely, definitely legitimate victims in this world, people who have been mistreated by other people and who's, who, um, who have outcomes in their own life. They've been affected by the terrible choices of others. So I'm not trying to say that anyone who says they're a victim or is entitled to some sort of recompense from someone else uh, is, is lying or is, or is actually ceding responsibility. This sort of judgment is difficult to make about another person. Um, you can spot what you think is this tendency showing itself in another person, but you can never be certain. This is why Jesus said it's important not to judge. But what you can be certain about is if you spot this tendency in your own heart. So don't let someone entice you into a victim status in order to cede your own responsibility, your responsibility, just like your faith, is sacred. And that's chapter 30. Chapter 31 will cover a little bit quicker uh, because there are, less, there are fewer events and there are fewer actual philosophies exposed here. But you may remember, so what happens to Korahor? Korahor because he's deaf and dumb, he has to beg now. He can no longer teach these terrible things he's been teaching. And it was made known that he admitted to lying, and so everyone repented. So he had to go among a people that he'd never gone to before, presumably because none of the Nephites would support him in his begging. 
they wouldn't support him because they, they felt betrayed by him, and rightly so. So he goes to the Zoramites, and this is the first time we hear about them. And the Zoramites, it says he was trampled by them. It appears that uh, he was, this, was, this happened on purpose. It may be that they, uh, they sentenced him to some sort of capital punishment by trampling, or it may be that uh, just an angry mob rushed upon him, or it may have been an accident. We, go, we don't get to find out. But what we do find out is there is a people that exist that are the Zoramites, and, they ex- and they've separated themselves from the Nephites. And then it's in the next chapter, 31, that we find out who they are. Now, I've talked a number of times about the tribes, the seven tribes of the Lehites. And Zoramites were one of these tribes. They've been, they'd been historically one of the Nephite tribes. So Nephite and Lamanite, these were more than tribes. Uh, one of the tribes was Nephites, and yet it, Nephite, the word Nephite was overloaded. It also described an alignment uh, towards good or towards evil, towards God or against God. Uh, likewise, Lamanite, it was one of the seven tribes, but it also was a supergroup of the seven tribes, describing an alignment towards evil, away from the Nephites, away from God. Zoramites were one of these seven tribes, but they were also part of the larger group called Nephites. They were part of the larger group that aligned themselves with God. And so it may be that these Zoramites, as is here described, are that tribe. This tribe, one in seven tribes, they separated themselves from the rest of the Nephites. And it appears like they want to become Nephite dissenters, or they already are dissenters. It appears like they want to become part of the larger Lamanite group. Uh, one of the questions that occurs to me is, what was so appealing about joining the Lamanites that so many of the Nephites want to do it? Uh, I don't have an answer for that, but I think it's an, interest, an interesting thing to ponder as we see that first the Amlicites and then the Amulonites and now the Zoramites, they appear to be wanting to live the kind of life that the Lamanites live, but that life has never been described as that attractive. So there must be something overriding, there must be some overriding concern in being able to call yourself a Lamanite that entices these Nephites to give up what they've known. Uh, My guess is it's along the lines of what we were just talking about. What is the defining ideology of the Lamanites other than Nephite took advantage of Laman? Nephi, I'm sorry, Nephi took advantage of Laman, our first father, and therefore we've been victims ever since. He took away the rule of all their people, and so all of the the circumstances of our, our life, they're not of our life. They're not due to our own choices. They're due to something that we inherited, and therefore we can shirk all of our responsibility and blame it on the Nephites. And this is one of the reasons why the Nephite, the Lamanites are so easy to stir up in anger against the Nephites. We'll see that in the lessons to come. So uh, I just put in my notes here, I wanted to talk about the Zoramites' origins. The, the fact is we don't know. Are they this tribe that Lehi uh, created on his deathbed? Uh, from Zoram, the, the servant who followed them into the wilderness? Or are they some other group who, who coincidentally had the name of Zoramites? I believe they're probably the tribe. And this tribe does survive because, and here's why, Alma was willing to go to them and preach to them, and he was able to get some of them to leave. The rest of them went over and just became Lamanites. But the Zoramite tribe it appears to be largely uh, represented by this wicked group of people. And this chapter is about the worship, the form of worship of the Zoramites. So they have chosen to separate themselves uh, from the Nephites, and what Alma discovers is the way in which they worship. So you you doubtless remember what the Ramiumptum is, but for those of you who don't 
No, this is inside their synagogues. There's a high place. And when they worship, they one at a time ascend this high place. They can be seen of everyone. And they make the same prayer. And Alma describes their form of worship. They make the same prayer, and then they come down, and the next person goes up and makes the same prayer, and then they all go home. They don't talk about God again until the next, uh, in, until the next week comes, and they meet again in synagogue and make this prayer. And what form does the prayer take? The prayer is, God, uh, we know thou art God, we know thou art holy, holy, holy God. And then they say, uh, thou, and we're grateful that you've separated us. We're different. Thou art a spirit. So we're going to talk about that first. Thou art a spirit. Why would they say this? What thou art a spirit does is it denies the resurrection. It removes the need for Christ. The resurrection in the Book of Mormon, I don't know if you've noticed this. I pointed it out a number of times. The resurrection is never taught without uh, teaching then the subsequent judgment. The implication in the Book of Mormon is that the resurrection is immediately followed by a judgment where we're brought in front of God. And not only is our body restored to us, but our deeds are restored to us. And these are almost the same event. So resurrection includes judgment. And therefore, uh, the, the whole point of the Zoramites' philosophy is to refute the need for judgment. And therefore, they have to say that God is a spirit. Or let me put it another way. Uh, one of their ways one of the ways in which they are able to refute the need for judgment is to say that God is a spirit because there's no, if there's, if God is a spirit, there's no need for resurrection and then there's no need for judgment. This is how they accomplish that. And another of their doctrines is that we are predestined to be saved. This doctrine has its manifestations in modern religions. Uh, Calvinism is the most well-known, but forms of predestination doctrine can be found in a lot of places. And this, this goes one step beyond. Not only are we predestined to be saved, but everyone who doesn't believe what we believe is predestined to be damned. Um, they're almost equivalent, but not exactly. And there is no Christ. So these are all things that they know and all things that they attest to when they pray. It's almost like a testimony meeting, except instead of a testimony, they make the identical prayer to each other. To me, I'm, as I'm reading this, I'm thinking this is an obvious, obvious tie to Matthew chapter 6, verses 5 through 8. Now, Christ came decades later and on the other side of the world, but he addressed this same phenomenon among the Jews of his time when he said that, woe unto those who pray in public that they may be seen of men. If you want to pray and get blessings from God, then pray in private. Let not thy right hand know what thy left hand doeth, in other words. And and that's a metaphorical way of saying, uh, don't do it so that anyone can know about it at all. Because if they do, and if you're doing it so that you can be seen of men, then you have your reward. And your reward comes from men, men thinking you're holy, other people believing that you are a prayerful person and all that, all that goes with that. So I was asking myself as I'm reading this prayer, and the prayer is that I'm, God, thank you because I'm already saved. I was thinking, okay, what do I have to gain? If I'm already saved, what do I have to gain by going to church? Why would I show up at Ramiemptum Church every week? and get up on the Ramiumptum and say this thing. And the only answer I could come up with is, um, I'm, as Jesus said, I'm getting my reward from the people who are watching me pray. So what was their reward? Later on in verses 24 and 25, Alma tells us, they were very concerned with gold and silver and their fine goods and in their boasting and their pride. So the, 
the Zoramites are almost totally caught up, or at least the upper crust of their society, those who still have membership in the synagogue. As we'll see later on, uh, the membership of the synagogue, they've denied the poorer members of their society access to worship. So therefore, these poorer people, they can't come into the synagogue and get up on the ramiumptum. And this sort of reinforces my view. Look, they are in church specifically to acquire one thing, which is status. Status to them is everything. They have, they have designed their entire system of worship around status. And status is a zero-sum game. Unlike salvation, where everyone can arrive in the court of God, status can only be gained when somebody else loses. I can only get a higher status if I put someone else down. This is the nature of pride. Uh, one of the weaknesses of people in general is that we tend to ascribe to God our own nature. And so we think at times erroneously that salvation is like status. It's zero sum. And therefore, I can only be saved of God if I can recognize the sinfulness of someone else and point it out to God and, and refuse to forgive them. This was one of Jesus's biggest challenges was teaching people, look, status uh, is not like salvation. Salvation is not a zero sum game. You only get to be saved if everyone can be saved. In other words, this door can only be open for you if it's open for everyone. Not everyone may choose to go through it, but that's not your concern. Your concern is you have to believe in a God that opens this door to everyone. Well, the difference between that and the Zoramites is they're involved in this zero-sum game where to them salvation is status. And they go to church in order to gain this form of status, which can only be gained by putting other people down. And they have a, they have a built-in underclass of these poor people. They built the synagogue. They built the Ramiumptum itself. But because they were the type of people to do manual labor, then the upper crust of Zoramite society rejected them and said, you can no longer worship with us. Because for the very reason that you have no status to confer, you are an underclass and then therefore nobody cares what you think, least of all us. Jesus Christ, uh, on the other hand, taught that everyone has infinite worth. And he spent his time and his money and his effort among the poor. He cared about them as much as anyone, and he found them more receptive than almost anyone. So in chapter 30, what we learned was what personal apostasy looks like. And now in chapter 31, we're seeing what general apostasy looks like. In chapter 30, our personal apostasy is all about the willingness to believe something so that we can commit sin. General apostasy is about polluting the worship of God and making salvation and status the same thing. Now that's all I'm going to say about chapter 31, except to talk a little bit about the prayer of Alma. So Alma, as he sees this, he's very, very hurt. He is so saddened by what he sees among the Zoramites, and so he offers this mighty prayer. And in his prayer, it's interesting because Alma's teachings are often, they often take this form. He says, I want you to remember the captivity of your fathers. This is a common thread among what he says to the Nephites. And here he displays that he has done that very thing. So if you remember, Alma's father, Alma the Elder, they were captured by the, the Lamanites and held in bondage. And they prayed to God and God made their burdens light. He didn't remove the burdens from them, but he made it so they could easily bear up those burdens. And even so much that they didn't notice that they were on their backs. And eventually they escaped their bondage, but not before they had learned to become strong enough to bear it. And this is what Alma prays for. 
So he's learned from the captivity of his fathers. He doesn't say, God, this is difficult for me. Take it away. He says, this is difficult for me. It's hurting me very much. Will you give me strength to bear it? And then he says about each of his companions in his missionary work, he says, look, God, they are going to suffer because of this. Will you give them the strength to bear this? So Alma has taken his own teachings to heart, and he has learned from the captivity of his fathers. And I think that's so wonderful. And it's also wonderful that he has prayers that are answered immediately. The prayers are shown to be answered before the end of the chapter. How many times in the Book of Mormon do we read that it is because of the prayers of the righteous that God has decided to take some action? And therefore, we have a very powerful testimony throughout the Book of Mormon that our, that our sincere prayers offered to God actually do matter. So one final point I want to say, this is, a, this is a lesson about apostasy, both personal and general, and I want to ask this question. Uh, it occurred to me as I was pre- preparing this lesson. We've talked a fair bit about the lost manuscript. Joseph Smith translated the first part of the Book of Mormon, a fair amount of it, and then lost it. So my question is, why did he lose the part of the Book of Mormon that he did? Or I guess better put, why was the part of the Book of Mormon that we still have, why was that preserved? I don't have an answer, obviously, from God, but one answer that I can suppose, we can, we can sort of get, we can ask ourselves this question, was the portion of the Book of Mormon that we have, was it preserved because it teaches us the following? Now, uh, to, to give you the following list, I'm going to go back to the beginning of the book of Mosiah, which is basically where the existing manuscript of Joseph Smith picks up. If you remember the teaching, what we taught at the time, Joseph Smith doesn't translate the book of First Nephi through Mosiah. He doesn't translate that until the end. He picks up his translation in the beginning of Mosiah. And what is the story of Mosiah? Mosiah is the story of the people of God, who want to believe in God, finding a place where they can be free, establishing a church, beginning to do missionary work. And now we're beginning, now we're entering a new phase of the story in the book of Alma, apostasy and war. Then what follows is the disintegration of society, the widespread destruction and disaster, the persecution of the faithful, and ultimately the coming of Christ. So I'm going to read these again. The books of Alma uh, Mosiah, Alma, Helaman, and Third Nephi. They're, they're what immediately follow Joseph Smith losing his manuscript. And they recount the story of this. The people of God finding the freedom to worship as they like, the establishment of a church, the uh, undertaking of vast missionary work, apostasy and war, disintegration of society, widespread destruction and disaster, the persecution of the faithful, and the coming of Christ. Now, so my question is to you, was the part of the Book of Mormon that we have preserved, was it telling us, was it preserved precisely so that it could tell us these stories? Because we are in the middle of the same story. Question mark. This is a question for each of you to answer. Uh, I believe to some extent the answer is yes. To some extent, the same story might be metaphorical. To some extent, it might be literal. And that extent, how far, how far is that extent? That's a question each of us has to ask and answer for ourselves. But this chapter, I don't believe, is very, that we can't be too equivocal about that. We know this chapter is, these two chapters are literal. We are to learn the lesson 
of how to recognize personal and general apostasy, the tendencies that would bring us towards it, and the means to resist it. Those means are to recognize our own worth, not to reject traditions simply because they're traditions, to accept our sacred responsibility for our choices, and like Alma, to trust in God through mighty prayer. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. This has been Gospel Doctrine, a nonprofit podcast hosted and produced by Mark Holt with bumper music by Kendra Holt. Gospel Doctrine is not affiliated with nor endorsed by The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints.